morning, church. God is good. And all the time. Uh, blessed by my church family. Well, we have a special treat today. Uh, a little while back, I got a phone call from uh, Walla Walla University saying they were going to be in the area. And uh, would we like the president, um, Dr. John McVeigh, to speak in our church? And, and I was scheduled to preach this Sabbath. And uh, I said, well, I think I can give up the pulpit for the president of Walla Walla University. Little did I know that God was also uh, being gentle with me since, as many of you know, my wife had knee replacement surgery yesterday. And so I've been able to give her my attention. And uh, so thank you, John, for coming and blessing us and me personally as well. Um, did not go to Walla Walla, but my sister did. And she's the strange one out of the whole family. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> A lot like Chris Church, if you have uh, got to know him. <laughs> Um, but we are honored to have you here. Thank you for coming. I was blessed by your message first service, and I know the rest of our church family will be blessed as well. Let's give Dr. John McVeigh a warm welcome here at Calamese. I'm delighted to be with you here at Calamese. It's been an exciting morning already. Uh, that uh, children's story was a gripping experience for me. Uh, it started early when some Walla Walla alums over here were waving dollar bills in the air and the kids weren't getting the cue and I was very tempted to go over and pick up those dollar bills. And then, of course, Chris left me sitting on the edge of my seat wondering where that advertisement for uh, Adventist higher education was going. Didn't know which horse to bet on. Uh, but delighted delighted to be with you. Some time ago, uh, uh, several years ago, I started a little collection of books. Uh, books about the second coming. Old books. Old Adventist books. I found them intriguing. I found their illustrations very interesting as they talked about the signs pointing forward to Christ's coming. And in preparing for this sermon, I went in search of my little stash of old Adventist books and spent a futile half an hour looking for them. But I'm happy to report that two minutes on Google Books did the trick. <laughs> and I was able to locate the pages I remembered so clearly from James Edson White's book, the Coming King, that Google Books reports is the 1898 edition, but I think this printing was a bit later than that. Uh, in the chapter on wars and rumors of wars is a page which pictures the Monitor and the Merrimack, the innovative ironclad ships of the Civil War era as evidence of both increased knowledge and heightened militarism. Uh, later on in the book is another page about, quote, the nation's airy navies, apparently the term Air Force not yet being common. That particular page, touting the fulfillment of the signs of Christ's coming, that particular page shows an ancient biplane, a dirigible balloon, and a close-up of someone seated amid the struts of a biplane firing a rifle that is pointed down to the ground, the latest and greatest in armaments. The signs are fulfilling. Knowledge is being increased. The weaponry and warmongering 
bear witness to the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that there would be wars and rumors of wars. Now it's easy, I suppose, to chuckle at our spiritual ancestors and their limited vision of the future. And limited it surely was. It is harder and wiser, I think, to reflect carefully and prayerfully on our own Adventist faith. For after all, it is Jesus himself who in the little apocalypse contained in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21 sketches out the signs of his return. False messiahs and false prophets working wonders, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, the sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, the powers of the heavens shaken. Most importantly of all, the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And Jesus not only gives the signs, he gives specific instructions to watch for those signs. Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 32. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Stay awake a bit later in the chapter. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How would Adventists of yesteryear react to an F-22 Raptor fighter streaking by at 1,600 miles per hour Mach 2.42, or stealth bombers and laser-guided cluster bombs, or U.S. soldiers ensconced in places like Colorado and Virginia controlling drones that attack targets in Afghanistan and Pakistan. What would they say about the very real threat of global nuclear proliferation? What would they perceive in the natural and economic disasters of the past few years? What would they see in the 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan? What would they think as they watched or would watch on our TV screens, our 52-inch TV screens, that immense surge of water destroying the northeastern coast of that rich nation, sweeping cars, ships, buildings away, and crushing coastal communities. What of the nuclear crisis at Fukushima? What of 20,000 dead or missing? What would they say? What about the economic and political crises in Europe? Just a few years ago, with the founding of the Euro and the Eurozone, it seems perhaps that Daniel chapter 2 is quite passé. The iron and the clay of the toes of that image are melding quite nicely, thank you. Now, though, we might find ourselves reading those prophetic words with fresh conviction. The feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom. They will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. What would they make of the largest and proudest economy in the world being brought to its knees by a gripping and enduring economic crisis? 
Would they shrug it off as unimportant? Or would they rustle the pages of their Bibles, perhaps, and turn to Revelation chapter 18 and read, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Our youthful spiritual forebearers were not just concerned about natural disasters and the like. They were concerned about the moral condition of their world. For Jesus had also said in Matthew chapter 24, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the 1932 edition of James Edson White's The Coming King, there is a rough sketch of a movie theater. You can see in the sketch the backs of the heads of the moviegoers playing on the screen seems to be a western. The page is headed with the words, iniquity shall abound, and the illustration bears this alliterative caption, the character of many of the movies is a menace to morals. What would these young Adventists of old make of the entertainment on offer in 2014? What if they toured one of our megaplex cinemas, stopping for a few head-shaking minutes in each of its 24 auditoriums? What would they make of the fact that you now can store the movie theater in your pocket, that we have 24-7, 365 access to the twisted values of a world gone awry? Well, I started thinking about all of this a little while ago in a Sabbath school class, one taught by Dr. John Dibdahl. And along the way, he took a little poll of our large Sabbath school class meeting in one of those arena classrooms. How many of you feel that the second coming is overemphasized today, John asked us, and not one hand went up? And then he asked, how many feel that the second coming is underemphasized these days? And I would say about a third of the hands went up. And then there was another little incident that happened more frequent, more, more recently. A business person in our community asks me in the presence of some others, you Adventists still believe that Jesus is coming, don't you? And with considerable confidence, I said yes. And then comes the follow-up question. And you believe that he's coming back soon, right? And just there I feel a little catch a little pause in my thinking, and my response to be gracious to myself lacks conviction. If Jesus was and is the Son of God, if he died to redeem humankind, if he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven to be enthroned at the right hand of the Father, if he intercedes for us as our heavenly high priest, if all of that is true, something else is true as well. There is coming a day when all the signs will have been fulfilled. All the earthquakes will have happened. All the tsunamis will have roared. 
All the tornadoes and hurricanes and cyclones will have ended their cruel paths of destruction. The last famine will have claimed its last victim. The last war will have been fought. The last weapon deployed. And yes, the gospel will have been preached to all the world. As I think about all of that, I wonder which is worse, to see the wrong signs or to see none at all. In ignorance of the future, to misjudge the signs, or in ignorance of the present, to miss them entirely. I am pleased that we stand in a heritage of Adv- as Adventists that is about far more than earthquakes and tsunamis. It is about Jesus. Our native posture is looking up, awaiting the return of the one who means so much to us because he has done so much for us. As I look at the New Testament passages about the second coming of Jesus, I'm particularly impressed about a set of them that employs one of the most intense, emotionally laden human experiences to try to understand the second coming. I'm speaking of passages about a wedding. In the next few minutes, we're going to read three such passages. There are many more. These three are the ones that include something rather crucial to a wedding. A bride. (laughs) Before we read these passages, though, I need to prepare you for the experience by providing a little refresher course on wedding etiquette, both in the 21st century and way back in the first century. To help myself prepare for this sermon, I visited a local bookshop and uh, surveyed their literature on wedding preparation. All those thick wedding guides and magazines and all the rest. And I chose something masculine out of that vast array of products on the shelves. It was entitled, The Everything Groom Book. Aside from its masculine focus, I think I was attracted by some of the, uh, some of the copy on the cover. Uh, I quote, The Everything Groom Book is here to help you keep your sanity while your fiancé is losing hers. There was <laughs> something about that line that I liked. Uh, and then there was this bit of advice a little later in the book. Good things to know. The least expensive time to plan a wedding is in the winter months between November and January. Now, granted, we've slid a little beyond that, but uh, prospective grooms, there's still hope. Get busy. You can accomplish this thing. So here's your little refresher course on wedding etiquette for grooms in the 21st as well as the 1st century. Question one, how long should the engagement be? 21st century advice. Long enough, but not too long. Or, as long as necessary, but as short as possible. Take your pick. What about the first century? Engagement? What is that? Here in the first century, we have something called betrothal, and it lasts for a while, usually at least a year, and it is the legal equivalent of marriage. If you are to break off this betrothal, you must go to court and get a divorce. Question two. What gifts am I supposed to give? And what am I supposed to pay for as the groom? 
Well, in the 21st century, there are a few minor things. Uh, gifts for your groomsmen. You're responsible for some flowers. Uh, but the Everything Groom Book offers some good advice on this topic. And again, I quote, You're supposed to take care of the bride's bouquet, your groomsmen, groomsmen's boutonnieres, and the corsages for both mothers and grandmothers. You may, however, want to leave the actual choosing of the flowers to the bride. <laughs> that strikes me as good counsel somehow. Oh, and by the way, grooms, 21st century grooms, uh, a, a thoughtful and expensive wedding present for the bride is a very nice touch. Back in the first century, there's a number of things, but there's one really, really big one. You see, back then, you don't really buy something for the bride, you, you buy the bride. <laughs> it's called the bride price, and, and it can be very expensive. Uh, to quote one heavy academic article on the topic, uh, I think you'll get the point even with this academic language. Quote, these payments can be large enough to affect savings patterns and have implications for the distribution of wealth across families and generations. <laughs> Which means, gentlemen, you are going to spend a lot. It's going to be a big ticket item. After all, do you really want a discounted bride? <laughs> Another question. Who's supposed to give the bride away? 21st century, father of the bride, or someone else that the bride designates? Uh, what about the first century? The best man, the best men, the father of the bride. Who prepares the bride for her, her wedding? Uh, in particular, thinking of the first century context, who administers the prenuptial bath? Well, let me assure you that uh, first century and 21st century are pretty much in agreement on this, gentlemen. Uh, all of that stuff is done by the female relatives of the bride. You are not to be there. Okay. For the groom to administer the prenuptial bath would be particularly bad form. What am I supposed to uh, do at the reception? 21st century, be eye candy. Uh, smile, act like you are enjoying yourself and wish this reception would go on forever. That's your basic assignment as a groom. Uh, first century, reception, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, the ancient wedding begins with a torch-lit uh, midnight processional. The groom and his attendants make their way, often mounted on, on animals, make their way to the bride's home, her father's home. They take her as part of the procession, and they gather her family members, and all of them return now to the home the groom has prepared, uh, to the groom's house. And there, with much fanfare, with a lot of music along the way, they begin the reception, if you will, except it tends to last for at least seven days. And yes, gentlemen, the tab for all those meals and entertainment is yours. Week-long feast. Well, with that little introduction to etiquette, that little workshop on wedding etiquette, we are ready now to read 
our three passages. Passage number one, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul is writing to his uh, disciples, people he has had a hand in converting to Christianity in Corinth, and he's worried about them, spiritually concerned about them. And he writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I'm the matchmaker. I set up this relationship. I planned this wedding. I'm looking forward to the second return of Christ when I can be there to make, to present you to Christ as a pure virgin. But I am afraid the apostle goes on, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and, and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You are living, says the Apostle Paul, in this dangerous time of the betrothal to a distant bridegroom. And you're hearing other voices, and you are becoming aware of other sutors. And it is a difficult, trying time of temptation. And I'm worried about you. I want to look forward to that day when I can present you as the pure, virginal bride to the divine bridegroom. To find the strangest wedding of all, though, we need to go to our second passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. And I need to uh, apologize to Francophones everywhere, but there is a wonderful French phrase that describes the incredible things that are going on with this in, with, within this passage. It, it is the little phrase, concentration christologique. There is a Christological concentration going on in this passage where all of, the, all of the roles that were parceled out to various ones in ancient wedding etiquette are now gathered up and concentrated in Jesus. He becomes everything to his bride. And it is very fascinating to watch this happen. In this passage, preparing you to read it with me, in this passage, Christ is the one who falls in love with the bride. He is the groom. He is the one who speaks the word of promise. He himself is the bride price. He gives himself for her. He is the one who administers against wedding etiquette of all time. He is the one who administers the bridal bath. He is the one who looks forward to presenting the bride to himself. All of this is strange in terms of wedding etiquette. In fact, it's downright rotten wedding etiquette, but it is great theology. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is everything to his bride, and he looks forward to that moment 
when he can present her to himself. This surely is, thanks to the poor etiquette on the part of the groom who turns this into a one-man show, this surely is the strangest wedding of all time. We, you and I, the church, are awaiting the bride, longing for our divine bridegroom to come and take us to himself. That's the way it seems to us. But I wonder what it is like for our groom. So, though only in some inventive corner of my mind, I sit down with Jesus and I ask him about this moment. What is this moment, this extremely long and extended moment, this millennia-long betrothal, what is this like for you, Jesus? He pauses, and then with a broad smile and a, a mischievous twinkle in his eye, he asks, could I remind you of a story? Sure. Do you remember your wedding day? Uh, well, uh, uh, yes. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, I do very well indeed. And, and since he seems to read the motives of my heart, I redden just a little. Pam was beautiful, Jesus says. And she still is, by the way. You had a lot more hair. <laughs> You were anxious for the wedding to go smoothly, the reception to go well, and for it all to be over, right? Uh, right. The organist begins playing your musical cue. You, your father, and your best man, Mark, process out to the platform. Your eyes are hungry for your bride, but the music plays on and on and on. There's no sign of any bridesmaid making her way down the aisle, much less your bride. There's no shift to that familiar tune that would announce she's about to appear. Something is wrong, but you don't have a clue what it is. You don't know that the maid of honor is having an extended fainting spell and that Herculean efforts are occurring to revive her. You don't know that. The organ keeps on playing. Eventually, out of sheer exhaustion on the part of the organist, the tempo begins to slow. You do remember this, don't you? Oh, do I ever. You have to look out at those guests and keep that silly grin plastered across your face, trying to telegraph that everything is quite all right and this long musical interlude is perfectly normal, planned in fact. Can you tune back into that moment? Can you remember how much you wanted it all to be over? Can you remember how much you wanted to grab that beautiful lady and dash into the sunset? Can you remember how ready you were to look down that aisle and see your radiant bride on her papa's arm? I can. Believe me, I can. He grows quiet, more serious. There's a long pause. And finally he says, that's how this moment is for me. Amen. There's one final passage. Remember, I promised you three, right? Revelation 19 through 22, these marvelous chapters that conclude Scripture, that conclude the apocalypse, have a lot of bridal image in them. We're just going to share four verses. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with linen pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Amen. Amen. Amen.